Well, good afternoon and welcome to A Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian Van Vactor and I am your host for today. I'm really excited to be here today. Uh, uh, Pastor Dave Robson was uh, fighting allergies and uh, it's the season here. So uh, we, he will be back here tomorrow, but I'm happy to fill in for him today as co-host. Uh, this is a daily, a weekday Bible answer program called The Reason for Hope. We broadcast live from our studio here in Tucson, Arizona, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. And there are many ways you can engage with us. We a answer questions live. Uh, we get questions from various social media platforms that you can follow along with. So if you want to check us out, you can go to Facebook. And, of course, check out our Facebook handle at CCF Tucson, or just do a search for us, and you'll find our Facebook social media page, and you can like, follow, and ask questions that we'll engage with here on the program. We also have a YouTube channel that we live stream to, and if you happen to come upon these social media platforms, we'd really appreciate if you would subscribe and hit that notification bell so that you can uh, stay tuned when we live stream services, special events, and, of course, this program. Our YouTube platform handle is a reason for hope 546 our senior pastor is pastor Scott Richards and he has a uh, quite the interesting Twitter uh, habit so we would really encourage you to check it out especially if you're interested in current events and how they relate to Bible prophecy you can also tweet to Scott questions that we can handle here on the program and his Twitter handle is Scott r4h that's R, the number four, the letter H. Now, if you are one of those folks who kind of would prefer not to engage on social media, you're like, oh, I don't have a safe Facebook account, and I don't like going on the YouTubes, <laughs> uh, we actually live stream as well to our website. So if you go to calvarychristianfellowship.com, you can check us out. This is our website, and you go to the Watch Live and you can not only watch the program, there's a little chat box at the bottom of the screen where you can type in your questions. You can even make prayer requests, engage with other people viewing right on our website. We not only live stream this program every weekday from 5 to 6 p.m., but we also live stream all our special events as well as our services. And this Sunday we'll be having, of course, our Easter services live streamed right here. So be sure to check those out. And if you want to download our app and follow on your mobile device, we have an app in the iTunes and Google Play Store. On this little app, you can follow along with a little digital Bible that's part of the app. You can also uh, keep track of all current events, watch live uh, presentations, as well as our archive sermons. And uh, we also have a, a Roku channel and all the Amazon Fire products channel on there so that you can, if you have one of those products, you can actually just do a search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson at our channel. Now, if you want to ask a question on this program and you'd prefer to do so uh, somewhat anonymously and you feel like it's maybe personal or something, whatever the reasons may be, we also have an email address that you can do that at, and that is questionsforhope at gmail.com. Questions for Hope, that's all spelled out with letters, no numbers, at gmail.com. Well, our in-studio Bible answer guys today, Pastor Sean Richards and Pastor Peter Martin. How's it going? How you doing, bros? Doing good. <laughs> Suffering about as much as Dave, but exposing ourselves to the public anyway. I, I feel bad for the allergy people. My wife, Allison, is one of those, and uh, I've never really struggled with allergies, and... Uh, I, I I feel bad because I hear everybody sneezing and coughing and watery-eyed. <laughs> yeah, it's not fun. <laughs> but uh, fortunately, 
this is kind of a kind of an allergy-free environment. We will see. There's not very much pollen in here. But uh, before we get to your questions, we're going to catch up on a few questions that were asked on yesterday's program that we didn't have a chance to get to. And, uh, and then we'll take your questions here today. But before we do that, why don't we take a moment to pray? Sean, would you do the honors? Be honored too. Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be here. I want to invite you to be here as well, to not only speak your word and bless your people, but bless your own heart and allow us to be conduits of your spirit in the ways you see fit. Let the people who are asking these questions have ears ready to hear and receive it, as well as hearts that are able and willing to, to use the information that we're sharing here in their lives as well. Bless Peter and I and allow us to listen to what you have to say, even if we're the ones speaking it, and allow this to not only be a source of edification and exhortation, but also of comfort, as your word always sets out to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And he's true. Well, Sean, did you uh, want to attack? What question did you want from yesterday? Did you want to tackle first? Oh, let's go look at the list. Um, great place always to start because it's been a week. Um, a question from Alex was asked, what was meant by the statement, faith without works is dead? Basically hmm. clarifying the difference between salvation and sanctification and the ever so eager cult groups to take James 2 out of context. So um, what is meant by faith without works is dead. Is that faith unto salvation? Is there any other kind? And what's the difference between what we would say, saving faith and sanctifying faith, Christian growth? Yeah, I'm no, assuming uh, he's looking at Peter because Peter's going to have to answer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, great question. So uh, James chapter 2 is a really, really amazing passage of Scripture, and it's one that I've been studying for many years and dealing with, as Sean said, many cult groups that twist it and manipulate it to say something that it doesn't. So let me cover that first, and then I'm actually going to talk about what I've learned this year that I think actually has brought this passage into more sharp clarity for me. So uh, traditionally, the way I've looked at the passage is from an apologetic lens, in which essentially the cult groups take that as meaning you cannot become saved, you cannot have a saving relationship with God unless it is acted out throughout works. So you perform works, you perform rituals, you go to their particular services, you are baptized in their particular church, you proselytize for their ministry, and then you become saved. That would be how many cult groups take James chapter 2. This would include Mormons, uh, Jehovah's Witness, and even Muslims to a certain extent. That this is what's in view here. You cannot have a saving relationship with God unless you perform works that enable you to have that saving relationship with God. This year, though, I've been looking at it from a different perspective. So uh, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien had a friend, uh, one of the Inklings, right, which was these Oxford writers that got together and uh, basically wrote stuff, right? <laughs> hence the name, Inklings. And one of their best friends was a guy named Owen Barfield. And both Lewis and Tolkien said he was the smartest guy they knew. But the problem is, is that he was basically unreadable by most people, uh, which is really unfortunate. But his ideas shaped both Lewis and Tolkien in their views of salvation, sanctification, and so forth. And he came up with this amazing concept, and he called it participation. So what participation is, and it has many different layers to it, and I really don't have time to get into all the totality of what it is, but he looked at a word that was in the Old Testament, the word ruach, and, and by the way, Barfield was a philo philologist, which means that he studied language. And he looked at the word ruach in the Old Testament, and the word ruach is the word that's traditionally translated spirit, but it could either be translated spirit or breath. And what he mentioned is that if you look at those two words, you have breath, an invisible aspect within the created order, 
And then you have spirit, an invisible aspect of the uncreated order, right? Because God is spirit and he's, he's uncreated. And they are combined into this one singular word in Hebrew. And what he believed is that participation is the unification of the spirit and the body, right? Aristotle called this, and this is another fancy word, hylomorphism, right? That our bodies or the physical world that we see around us are the manifestations of spiritual reality that we can't really conceive of. So uh, when you're looking at a body, a lot of people have the question of, well, what is the body? Is the body a shell that contains the spirit, or is the body all you are? Are you just a materialistic being and the body is all you are? Uh, the idea of hylomorphism or the idea of participation is that the body is the representation of the spirit, and they are inseparable from one another. And so what Barfield would say about James chapter 2 is that the body must participate with the spirit. Once you believe something, the only way for that belief to become true is if it's manifested in physical actions and activities. The way that religious groups get this wrong is either by A, having the dualist view, which states that the body is simply a shell that contains the spirit. And if you're a dualist, you would believe, well, works are not necessary to salvation because if you simply think something in your mind, whether or not you ever act it out in your body makes no difference, right? It doesn't matter what you do in the body. It only matters what you do in the mind. And that's specifically what James is attacking, by the way. In the book of James, he's attacking this idea that the body has nothing to say about the activity of the mind or the activity of the spirit, however you want to put it. What he's getting at is that since the body is the physical representation of the spirit, it must necessarily participate with the activity of the spirit in order for it to be real. So he uses the example that the body, and you could see that he's on the same uh, tack that Barfield is, the body without the spirit is dead. In other words, they have a participation with one another. The body, if the spirit is deprived from the body, it is a dead body. It can't operate anymore. And in the same way, faith, an intellectual or spiritual assent to something, if it isn't ever manifested in works, it's a dead faith. It can't be real. It's something that doesn't matter, in other words. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis put it this way when he was talking about faith. He says, asking the question of what saves you faith or works is like asking what wing of the plane do you want to have intact when you're flying 30,000 feet above the air, right? You need both, right? Faith necessarily must manifest itself in works. This is why the apostles said things like, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. That would be a nonsensical statement if they didn't care about what happened in the body. It only makes any amount of sense if you believe that what takes place in the body is a ne necessary manifestation of what happens in the spirit. Even Jesus seems to speak like this when he says, uh, what goes into a man does not defile him, but what comes out of a man is what defile him. From out of a man come abominations and uh, basically goes through this list of what's wrong with us. In other words, what he's saying is there's something in me, there's a spiritual activity happening within me that manifests itself in my physical actions. And that happens in a negative sense as well as a positive sense. So that's all James is getting at. So if I were to talk to someone <clears throat> and they were to say, well, does baptism save you? And say, well, no, of course baptism doesn't save you. What saves you is putting your faith in Jesus Christ unto salvation. But if someone, if I were to explain to someone what baptism is, well, it's this acted out participation with what you believe in God. And they say, well, I'm not going to do that. It doesn't add anything to my salvation. I'm not going to do that. I say, well, it's dangerous territory. 
because you're saying you don't want to act out what you believe, which makes me think that you don't actually believe it, right? It, make, it makes me think that you don't actually have a faith in God. Or if someone says, well, I believe that having sex before marriage is bad for you, but I'm going to continue to have sex with my girlfriend before we get married. I'd say, okay, well, you, you believe it, but you're not participating in that belief utilizing your body. So therefore, that's a dead faith. It doesn't matter that you believe it or not. Either A, that means it's a fake faith, you don't actually believe it, or B, that faith isn't doing anything for you because it's not being acted upon. Uh, but regardless, it's something that's completely dead and annihilated, and that's what James is saying. And he uses an ultimate example, Abraham, which I think is really interesting. So uh, in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham is declared righteous by his faith alone. It says that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness, and James quotes that passage. But then he talks about how Abraham acted upon that faith in Genesis chapter 22. So he says, don't you see that his works made perfect his faith? Now, what does he mean? He means that Abraham believed something, but until he acted, out, acted it out, it's not that the faith was dead. Obviously, it was already saving him, but the faith needed an opportunity to manifest itself. And it manifested itself in the test that God gave to Abraham, right? That participation was a necessary component to Abraham's saving relationship with God. So in other words, if in Genesis 22, God would have said to Abraham, I need you to give me your son, your only son, and sacrifice him for me. And Abraham said, no. That would have been evidence that Abraham did not actually believe the promise of God in Genesis chapter 15. It would have been a lack of participation and a lack of manifestation of Abraham's faith that would prove that Abraham didn't have faith in the first place. Now, this is very different than someone who has a faith that they don't live up to. All right, so if I have a faith in God, and I believe something, and I fail to live it out, right? I have uh, faults in my character, faults in my nature that prevent me from doing the things that I know I ought to, which we all do. That's Romans chapter 7, right? That's what Paul says. That doesn't mean that you lack the faith. That means that you lack the ability, and those are different things. What James is talking about is not the person who says, I believe that God has said this, and I'm trying to do it and failing. He's referencing the person that says, I believe in God, but then whenever they're confronted with a moral obligation from God, they say, well, I don't have to do that because I believe in God and I'm saved, right? That's the person he's referencing, the person who believes that there needs to be no uh, manifestation of works that come from faith. That's, that's the idea there. So just to recap, we've got that statement sandwiched between the example of Abraham, who was saved by faith seven chapters before he proved it was real, but the proof that it's real is a lot different than if someone not just proving that they have something, but doing the sort of things that include that relationship. That when we're talking about getting saved, we're not telling people, you got to do stuff. We're telling you to believe something, that Jesus was who he said he was, and that he proved it through his resurrection from the dead, a la Easter. But if on the other hand, we take, I guess, one step too far, and go, well, unless you do this list of things, which usually the cult group does you the favor of telling you exactly what, then you're simply not saved, then you don't match up to the standard of salvation. Now, the standard of salvation is spelled out clearly in Scripture. The standard of what we call sanctification is living in light of that salvation, not in spite of it. Right. But, it, but again, even uh, the early Christians... You see when they're making converts of the pagans around them, they are giving them a different way of living. Mm -hmm. And so the pagans are having to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Now, again, that doesn't mean that they're able to do everything that's prescribed to them, but it means 
that by putting their faith in Jesus, they are acknowledging him as Lord, right? So it's different than lordship salvation, where you would say that Jesus must be Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. The idea here is I need to understand that giving my life to Jesus is going to have an effect on the way that I live. Do I understand all the aspects of that? No, but I do understand that it, it, ha- it must impact the way that I live my life. Otherwise, there's no sense in me saying, well, I believe in, I put my faith in Jesus as my Lord and Savior, but I don't expect him to tell me what to do, right? That would be, that would be a nonsense statement for sure. Right. Well, thank you both. I learned. <laughs> I learned. I learned. <laughs> well, uh, did you want to uh, do some more from yesterday or did you? Yeah, of course. Okay, great. Uh, you have the list, so I'll work through. Okay. Um, the, another question, this was from Mac, wanted to know, is Israel an apartheid state? And we would consider this a Bible question because the support and well-being of the people of God in geographical and literal Israel, not just as we know it today, but as the Bible recognizes it throughout history, is, of course, the target of a lot of propaganda. And if we were to, rightly so, be supporting a nation that abuses and neglects and uh, demonizes people on the basis of ethnicity, then we would have some things to say about that. The problem is it's simply not true, and we want to make sure that when criticisms leveled against the Jewish people, that we're not doing so in a way that is demonizing the people of God or slandering them, literally, to uh, falsely accuse them of wrong. But if, on the other hand, there are things, of course, that we can criticize them about, that needs to be based on fact. Uh, First and foremost, when people say that Israel is an apartheid state, they're usually coming from a worldview that assumes that the Hebrew people are lower than pigs, they're lower than cattle, that they are the enemies of the prophets. I'll let you figure out which religious ideology fits into that chapter and verse. But there's also groups that are siding with them in order to gain their support in other political ideologies. So that needs to be taken into consideration. When these groups are trying to demonize Israel, of course, because this is the age of the internet, and when people have only two brain cells to argue with, racism and sexism are just the two things that come up. So in order to support the accusation of Israel being racist, of Israel being uh, oppressive towards the Arab citizens that live there, they would accuse them of enacting the political policies that were at work in South Africa when people, based on a lighter skin tone of ethnicity, were given privileges and government positions and access to roles in government, police, and the military that people with darker skin couldn't. That's an apartheid state, and there are other aspects of it, but that's what's mainly important here. If you were to accuse Israel of being an apartheid state, you'd at least expect that to be at work. The problem is there are Arabs, non-Jewish people, Muslims even, religiously, but Arabs ethnically, that are in parliament in positions of high government. There are Arabs in the police force, the Israeli police force, not the separate PLO police force, whatever that's worth. And there are also Arabs in the Israeli military, actively serving in the defense of Israel's borders. Now, whether or not they're giving special or preferential treatment, sleeper cells, I don't know. I'd have to judge on an individual basis. But there are good people. There are Arabs who are Christian. There are Arabs who are human. (laughs) There are Arabs who are decent people that are just living in Israel. And the Israeli government recognizes that. If you were to accuse them of that, then you'd have to demonstrate this sort of political 
uh, favoritism on the basis of ethnicity, which simply doesn't exist. So when you see internet memes around going, the Jews are war criminals, say where and when, and when they send you memes or references or Wikipedia articles, uh, continue reading, and you'll find out that either the circumstances leading up to it, after it, or the fact that those things were staged and actually performed by Hamas will make them have to change the topic or go to their next point. If they say, oh, well, the Jews are controlling the weather, then you can just give them space and let them finish having their episode until the medicine kicks in. And then if they say, well, Israel's racist, they're apartheid, where and when? Here's the Israeli government, here's the Israeli military, here's the Israeli police force. Notice how there are Arabs in that group. There are, quote-unquote, Palestinians in that group. So it's a non-starter. Just make sure that the facts are on your side, that if any word is spoken against God's people, that first of all, it's correct, and secondly, that you leave to him who, righteous judge, or who judges righteously to deal with his people accordingly, that we're not the ones slandering them. We, of course, can disagree with the decisions of the Israeli government, but as Christians, if we take Genesis 12 <laughs> seriously, then we're going to want to support and defend them whenever and wherever we can, and that includes with it a blessing that I want for my life, and that is, of course, blessings. <laughs> God will bless those who bless you, speaking to Abraham and his descendants, specifically the ones who would carry on the Messianic prophecy, and I will curse those who curse them. I don't want to be cursed. So if someone makes an accusation against Israel, then even more so. Always check it out. That's not one that sticks. Yeah. If you're going to, at least make sure it's true. <laughs> yeah. Make yeah, sure. a couple, couple last thoughts on that. So the first one is, in our modern society, we have this interesting idea, and it comes from Marx, but it's this interesting idea that you cannot be an oppressor or you cannot be someone that is uh, violent or racist unless you have power. So if you don't have institutional power, then you cannot, you literally cannot be a racist from this ideology. Now, it's poisonous and stupid, but that's the ideology that many of these people have. From this ideology flows this idea that there is a genuine conflict between the Palestinians and the Israelites, and the Palestinians have an amazing propaganda wing that they utilize in order to paint Israel in a negative light. The reason why the modern media conglomerate as well as the modern progressive left element of our country is so eager to accept the propaganda of Hamas and of uh, the Palestinian authorities is because they have this belief. They have this belief that you cannot be racist, you cannot be an oppressor unless you have institutional power. And so because Israel is wealthy and powerful and prosperous and the Palestinian country is not, Israel must be the oppressor in this situation. That's how Marx categorized things, is that you have oppressors and you have oppressed. That's it. You're either one or the other. You can't be a neutral party. So since Israel has institutional power and they're doing great and Palestinians do not, therefore Israel must be disadvantaging them in some way and stealing their authority. That's the only possible way that that could work from that worldview. Now, we as Christians don't believe in that worldview, right? We shouldn't believe in that worldview. There's not just oppressors and oppressees. There's not just people who have the haves and the haves nots. There's many people in between. And just because you have power and authority does not necessarily mean you're using that to oppress others. And if you don't have authority, that doesn't make you a more virtuous person, right, by necessity. Many of the Palestinians, the reason why they're in the situation that they're in, there's many factors here, I'm, I'm way oversimplifying it, but one of the main reasons why they're in the situation that they're in is because they've given institutional authority to Hamas. 
And Hamas is a terrorist organization that's misusing the funds that are coming in to Palestine in order to wage a fruitless war against Israel because they, well, I mean, for them, it's not fruitless. <laughs> they, again, are wearing down the support of Israel's allies to try to eventually overtake them. But uh, it's this fruitless war against Israel in order to overthrow them, and they're using any and all means to do so. Uh, another interesting concept, uh, Sean already mentioned the fact that Israelis do very, I mean, I'm sorry, Arabs do very well in Israel. What's the reverse? Do Israelis do really well in Palestine? And the answer is no. In fact, just last week, some German tourists, you guys, I don't know if you saw this video. Yeah, these German tourists, they rented a car from Israel. So it had Israel plates on it and went into Palestine and a group of Arab men actually accosted the car and tried to pull them out and possibly murder them right and this this is just because they had israeli plates and they were pleading they're like we're not israelis you know we're, we're germans and they were on the news talking about this and it's like no one stops to think about how incredibly racist that is that we just expect that you well you just don't drive through palestine with israeli plates you can't even drive through this country with israeli plates Forget about an ethnicity of an Israeli driving through a Palestinian area. You can't even do it with a car that bears the plates of Israel. That's how antagonistic this, this country is to the Israeli population. So if anything, there's an apartheid state in Palestine. Right? You're not going to see any amount of Israelis rising to prominence within Palestine, but you will see the reverse. A great video that just came out as well, um, Ami Horowitz, who does... Mm -hmm who does PragerU videos, he went to Israel and he interviewed Arabs within, it's like a four or five minute video. His videos are kind of it's hilarious. Great, yeah. It's a really great video. He actually interviews Arabs that live in Israel and asks them what they think about it. And I think only one person says they don't like it, but they're like a university student, obviously. And, and they have like a really bad reasoning, but they even, even they say at the end, yeah, I, I would prefer that things stay the way that they are. I, I yeah, wouldn't want over ninety percent of the people you interviewed did that. Right, and I think he also asked, "Would you prefer to live with with Palestinians in the Palestine control Palestinian controlled areas?" And they were like, "No, yeah. no not in a million years." <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, thank you. Thanks for the question. Velma wants to know, uh, and there were several iterations of this, but um, the way I'm gonna paraphrase all that Velma uh, put on chat. Thank you for all the dialogue there. Uh, why does it seem that the righteous experience greater trials in life? And and Velma also included believers and non-believers. Like, there are some believers who may be on the prosperity end of the spectrum. Why does it seem that they're very comfortable? Why does it seem that only <laughs> us really evangelical, truly committed believers seem to experience much, uh, many trials and persecution. Yeah, um, let me start by just reading Psalm 73. This was written by Asaph, who's the worship leader. During the time of David, he was asking this question, and note how he's phrasing these things. Truly God is good to Israel, to as such are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So he starts off by saying, I was flummoxed by the idea that evil people seem to have better places in life, yet for some reason at the same time God is good to his people, to the righteous people. In verse 4 it notes, For there are no pangs in their death, that their strength is firm. They have easy deaths. 
They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than their heart could wish. That's a good thing in the ancient world. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. You made a point of mentioning not just prosperous Christians, but the prosperity gospel. People masquerading as believers that God has an easier time with. It acknowledges that in the Bible. Therefore, as people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them, and they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? They have no shame in what they're doing. They know that if, well, they don't know, but they think that because I'm not going to be accountable for this, who cares what I do? Sounds like some of the philosophers we've been talking about. Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. He contrasts himself with the wicked wealthy and the guy who's trying to do right in his life and seems to only suffer for it. But he goes on to say, Surely I've cleansed my heart in vain. Notice this. If I had, I would speak thus. Behold, it would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought of how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Verse 17, Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. And he goes on to note that they will have some splaining to do, Lucy. So here's the point. Why is it that Christians seem to have a harder time in life? Because this life isn't all there is. Those who want a relationship with God, who are investing in the next life rather than this life, are willing to undergo hardships in this life, a la Hebrews chapter 11, having their children taken away from them, living as sojourners and wanderers, leaving behind a land that they knew, all for the sake of what? Seeking a better homeland. We understand that everything we've been given in this life is a blessing, and every curse in this that we are given in this life is kind of to be expected. This world is still separated from God, and we're following the example of a guy who was hated and rejected and betrayed constantly. So follow that logic there. But the point being made, and Asaph's observation is, Would I rather want to stand before God in a life that has nothing to show for it apart from itself, what I leave behind? Or would I rather have a lot to leave behind in this life, a lot of heartache and pain, to receive something much more glorious? And that was the whole point of one of his parables where he noted, and it's questioned as a parable in of itself, but the comparison between the rich man and Lazarus, a guy who had a hard time in this life, but had a right relationship with God and was awaiting his redemption from the Messiah. There was a guy who had everything going for him in this life, respected member of the community, respected by his colleagues, everything that you would consider someone as right with God with. He named and claimed it, he blabbed it and grabbed it, he uh, put feet to his faith and all that stuff, and uh, obviously had a lot of wealth to show for it until he stood before the Lord and was awaiting judgment. So the point being made is this. And you can note this in 2 Corinthians 5, you can note this in 1 Corinthians 3. Going through, in 1 Peter, I'm not sure the chapter, but noting that point as well. The things that we go through in this life are described in Scripture as essentially building material for what we'll take with us to the next Mm -hmm. life. The things that are for Christ, and usually involving suffering, but not always, 
will be considered gold, silver, precious stones. The things that are apart from Christ will be considered wood, hand, stubble, and consumed by the presence of God. When we stand before him saved, and note this is in regards to the cult leaders, the people who claim to have a relationship with God but are purposefully manipulating God's people for the sake of usury and fraud, they won't have anything before the throne of God. But those who gave sincerely, those who suffered hardship because of their manipulation, but did so out of a desire to just support the thing that God was doing, they'll be rewarded for that, even if it costs them something in this life. Those who give their life, gain it. Those who seek to save, to prosper their life, will lose it. These are points that are constantly made in Scripture. Now, here in the United States, Velma, we are incredibly blessed compared to not just the rest of the world, but many places here in the United States as well. We would consider abject poverty here, you know, compared to, you know, Asia, Africa, the slums of Calcutta in particular, basically living on the high end of life. There was a Babylon Bee article that, as always, hit the nail on the head and saying a man's depressed in the fact that he's living better than kings did in medieval Europe 400 years ago. But the fact is, when we ask ourselves that question, that comparison of why is God letting me go through this, he's preparing you for something greater. And if your priorities aren't in getting your most out of life here, living your best life now, not so subtle nod, then you have priorities in the next life. That was Asaph's perspective. And he concluded that psalm with this in verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? There's none upon the earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. That's just uh, usually a term compared to idol worship, having other priorities than God. But it is good for me to draw near to the Lord. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. So the point being made, Velma, is that. Why is it that people in this life tend to have it easier when that's all they're living for? Because that's all they're going to get. But people who have a hard time in life when they try to do the right thing, it's because they're following Jesus and he had the hardest life imaginable. But look what it got him. Look where it got him. And look where it's going to bring us. That's the perspective we have as believers. Uh, yeah, it's going to sound like a contradiction to what you just said, but it's not, trust me. Um, <laughs> just just wait, let the thought flow. Yeah. Um, Fight me. <laughs> so, yeah, Jesus said the, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Suffering is something that is common to all men, right? Everybody is going to suffer, whether you believe in God or not. Uh, one of the most... Well, I mean, Christians are pretty persecuted around the world right now, uh, as always, but uh, a, a highly persecuted group right now in the world are the Uyghur Muslims, right? These are people who are not faithful to Christ, and they're suffering extensively, uh, and yet there are Christians in this world that are prospering greatly. Being a good person or being an evil person doesn't say anything about the suffering that you're going to endure. It may just dictate the kind of suffering that you're going to endure. So there's three particular types of suffering that we're going to endure on this earth. There's uh, natural suffering, in, in which case everybody is going to be victim to that. You, you can't escape it. It's going to hit you at various times. It's essentially what the writer of Ecclesiastes says, chance and luck happen to all, right? There's nothing that really predicts this type of natural suffering that's going to occur to you, cancer, tornadoes, hurricanes, things like that, fire, famine, flood, all these things are going to afflict 
everybody on the planet at varying degrees depending on where they are. It's just kind of chance in a lot of ways. Uh, the second one would be suffering from persecution, meaning people that hate you and revile you because of stuff that you're doing. Christians tend to take the lump sum of that type of suffering throughout history. And there are reasons for that that uh, you know I could elaborate maybe in a follow-up if you want. But Christians do tend to take the brunt end of that type of suffering throughout world history. But again, it also depends on what kind of a Christian you are and what time frame you're living in. Sometimes Christians have dominated a particular area and they haven't had much persecution, right? I think that for the majority of my life, I haven't really endured much persecution for being a Christian. So I'm pretty thankful for that. So it does depend on where you live, the demographic. And so some of that even is just chance and luck. Uh, the third type is self-inflicted suffering. So this is you're suffering because you're going against the wisdom of God. Uh, this is what the whole book of Proverbs is about. It's about trying to avoid this type of suffering. And that is something that you do have control over, right? If you are suffering in poverty right now because you've made bad financial decisions, that's your fault. That's a you problem. The good news is, is that since you're the one that did it, you can undo it, right? With your good decisions, you can hopefully get out of that particular lifestyle and get into a better one. So there are self-inflicted sufferings that we have. Christians ought to actually be least affected by that because we have the beginning of fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Since we know the one who ordered the universe, we have access to the rules that govern the universe through his law. And by orienting yourself to those, you will have a much more prosperous life, right? So if I learn how to be a hardworking person, which is a virtue, if I learn how to be courageous, if I learn how to speak the truth, my relationships are going to be better. I'm going to have a better life as a whole. I might be persecuted for doing these things, for sure, and I'm still afflicted by natural suffering, but at least that part of my life will be better. And I think about my parents. Uh, my parents, knowing God, definitely led to them having a much more prosperous life than they had before. My dad was a drug dealer, and his parents were alcoholics. My mom was struggling because she was involved in all that around my dad, who was not the greatest of guys at the time. And by giving their lives to God, it taught them the virtues of hard work. It taught them the virtues of dependency on a good community and surrounding themselves with good values. They got clean, they got sober, and now they're living a pretty prosperous life as a result. They've endured a lot more persecution than they would have if they wouldn't have done that. But as a whole, their lives are a lot better off than they would have been if they never came to know God. So oftentimes it can seem as though Christians are getting the shaft and we are suffering more as a result of our faith. But actually it's just it's just not true. Like people are suffering because we're living in a fallen world. There are many atheists who have tragic, tragic lives, and there are many Christians who have really prosperous lives. The main point, as Sean uh, illustrated, is that just because Christians endure suffering, though, because we know the author of the universe, he can shape those sufferings into something beneficial for you. That's the beauty of it, right? He can utilize those sufferings. If you don't know God, then it's just suffering for suffering's sake. All you're going to get at the end of a trial is loss. A Christian can get actually some treasure out of that, and that's the beauty of having a saving relationship with God. Isn't there a a, a nuanced version <laughs> of where, because we're God's children, that God taking disciplinary action in our lives could constitute suffering? Yeah. Um, and that that would be unique to the Christian experience as opposed to those who don't know the Lord. Well, you know, you even, that, that, even that, you know, you could say that some of the tragedies that befall the unsaved, the unregenerate, are disciplined. They're just not disciplined in the same way that the writer of Hebrews is talking about. It's the natural consequences of sin as exactly. opposed to God 
intervening in a believer's life to exact a form of discipline that may not be the natural outworkings of bad decisions, but God being Father, Abba, and disciplining those he loves and those he considers children. Trying to, yeah, and that, that can happen. Uh, sometimes the discipline of God doesn't work out in these like massively cosmic or obvious ways. Mm-hmm. But yeah, of, oftentimes God will allow for the believer to be more and more aware of their sinful behavior, mm-hmm. their need and dependency upon God, and he'll shape things. But you know, I think about guys like Stephen Hawking. He's an atheist. He's had kind of a tragic life. Mm. He's got a pretty bad illness. I wouldn't want to have his life. Uh, I think about even guys like Joe Biden. He's had a pretty tragic life. Someone would say, well, he's president. Well, I don't even know if he knows that, first <laughs> off. But secondly, he's had a very tragic life. Like his yeah, wife yeah. died in a car accident. His son died of brain cancer. Right? He's, he's had a pretty tragic life. I wouldn't want to trade places with him mm-hmm. either. So mm-hmm. being a, like I said, being a non-believer doesn't necessitate a prosperous life, and being a believer doesn't necessitate a tragic life. Uh, the thing that we need to focus on, though, is that a Christian cannot have an ultimately tragic life. Jesus had a tragic life from an mm. external perspective, but from an eternal perspective, he had the most glorious life that's ever been lived. Mm. So that's the beauty that we as Christians have, and that is the beauty that is negated from those who don't know God in a saving relationship. That's a good word, brothers and sisters. So, true or false? My, the church I used to get, I, that used to, the church <laughs> I got baptized in, <laughs> the pastor would say, in order for God to use a man greatly, he must hurt him deeply. Agree or disagree? Or is it not an exact yes or no answer? <laughs> it's not always. There are people that were blessed and were a blessing as a result. There were people who were used tremendously. Your favorite uh, book of the Bible is a guy who was <laughs> put through the ringer yeah. in order to be used Very by God effectively. Life. Jeremiah is who we're referring to. Mm-hmm. But I mean, if tragedy is mm-hmm. universal, there, there should not be a unique uh, plot of suffering for the believer. That would make that statement not true. That, yes, yeah, some Christians will be hurt deeply, uh, doesn't necessarily that God can't use someone who's not experienced tragedy or great suffering. Uh, God can use someone who has not suffered. They might suffer as a result of serving God, like the Apostle Paul didn't seem to suffer too much until he decided to follow Christ, and then it was a tremendous amount of suffering. But uh, uh, So would you, what would you think, Peter? Do you think in order for God to use a man greatly, he must hurt him deeply? Um. So I, I kind of agree and disagree with that statement. So I agree in the sense that uh, in order to have, and this is Romans 5, right? So the, the test, we even glory in tribulations, knowing that the testing of our faith produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not disappoint for the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. whom has been given to us. So in Paul's perspective, the only way to build up the virtues of perseverance and by perseverance, tested character that's solid and has integrity, and from that hope of eternal life, mm. you suffering is kind of a necessary component to that. And the uh, James, the brother of Jesus, he says that in the opening of his own epistle, where he says that, uh, let us rejoice in testing or temptation, mm. or some translations even say trial, uh, for we know the testing of our faith produces patience, and let patience have its perfect work in you that you may be complete and lacking in nothing. So some amount of suffering has to enter into the life of the believer, but like I said, since it's universal, everybody has some manifestation of suffering. Mm-hmm. It's, are you aware of it, and are you shaping that suffering towards benefiting mm-hmm. you or not? And this is one of the primary contentions I have in my book, Fellowship of Suffering. The big problem with the West is that the West portrays our lives. We have a tendency to portray our lives as though they're free of suffering, and so we don't know how to talk about it very well. 
Mm. So many people in the West have issues with uh, deaths in the family, disease, broken relationships, uh, pervasive, evil, abusive behavior that exists inside their families. But they're just so ashamed of talking about it that they never do. They hide it. This new generation is so obsessed with talking about it that they never want to get over it, mm. which is equally bad. But the previous generations were just so ashamed of it they wouldn't even bring it up. So uh, both are really bad when it comes to, again, collective healing and growth within God. But we need to be aware of the sufferings that are present within our lives and learn from them. We can't do that by having a stoic mentality that says, well, you know, rain falls on the just and the unjust. It's just kind of my part of being in a fallen world, and I'm just going to move on and not care about it. That's not going to help you. But on the other token, just saying like, oh, my life is a tragedy, and I'll never get over this woe, and uh, I'm a victim, and da-da-da. Like, that mentality is also not going to help you learn mm -hmm. from your tragedy. You have to be able to go to God and say, my life is neither a tragedy or a comedy. My life is yours. And therefore, ultimately, my, my life will be glorious. God, help me mm. to see the elements of my life, good and bad, mm. that are making it glorious. That's the person that could be used by God. And that's why joy is a command, mm -hmm. because we have to live life with an eternal perspective. Exactly, yeah. Hopeful awesome. Build. I hope that helps you, Vilma. I hope the added dialogue uh, was insightful for you. It certainly was for me. Uh, uh, Clive wants to know, I hope, yeah, Clive, uh, follow up on what does it mean that people will depart from the faith? Are these genuine Christians that leave for a time and come back, or are these people never saved to begin with, or are they genuine believers that just walk away for good? Yeah, apostasy is a fun topic. Um, obviously, <laughs> and other morbid statements of the day. Yeah. Um, no, it depends if you're referring to the First John version or the Second uh, Timothy, I believe, version. Uh, when we're talking about, some might even say they're the same, but the First John version clarifies they went out from us to prove they were not of us. So there are people who depart from the faith because they were never of the faith. They just kind of joined in with the crowd because that was the way the wind was blowing that week. And there are, of course, people who come up in Christian circles and just show they never really had a heart for it, but because they were kids and they were under the stewardship and influence of their parents, the moment they broke free from that, they embraced glorified alcoholism through their college years and basically just stick in that until they're 40, maybe come back to it, maybe, maybe not but it ultimately is left between them and the Holy Spirit. Now, obviously, this is what opens up the can of worms for eternal security versus um, you can lose your salvation through your will and efforts. The idea behind both is that salvation is in Jesus. So I think the best way to handle apostasy is the same way you would any situation. Where do they stand with Jesus? And this is where the word apostasy comes from. It means to fall away. From what or where? With Jesus. Someone who abides in a living relationship with Jesus is saved. Someone who doesn't isn't. So if the question is, did that person ever know Jesus, or did that person know Jesus and walk away from him, it puts them in the same position. They don't know him right now. Now, could they come back to him? We've seen examples of that. Could they continue to fall away and ultimately stand before the Lord in that separated state, having known all that they departed from? Absolutely, there are examples of that as well. What needs to be kept in mind isn't, well, where is that person's position with Jesus? Because it's really almost a projection of our own hearts and anxieties. It, could that be me? 
am I next on this list? Could uh, the enemy come by with an offer I can't refuse? And let me know if you catch that reference. And of course, to cause us to fall away from Jesus. The idea is to not even entertain that mindset, that there are those kinds of people who never knew Jesus, but you children are of God. You know what he's done. You know that what he's done for you, and you know how he's proven it. You know the reasons you have to trust in him. They apparently didn't, but don't let that be you. The lesson of every apostate is, of course, a cautionary one, and the lesson for every seasoned saint who goes home in glory is an exemplary one. But the key difference between the two of the once saved versus you can lose it, always saved, that whole idea, where's Jesus? He always needs to be the focus in matters of salvation because he's really the only topic worth discussing. Apart from him, we don't have it anyway. Anything you want to add to that, Peter? No, it's good. Well done. Well, we have a few more minutes, and we have another question from, uh, let's see here, John. In the Holy Week, why is it, why is Tuesday, sorry, in the Holy Week, why is Tuesday to some groups called Fig Tuesday? Because according to tradition, they think that's when Jesus cursed the fig tree. Uh, Just to give you a chronology of Jesus' last week, the Holy Week, as they call it, um, he fulfills the prophecy of Daniel 9.27 and entering into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday, the first day of the week. They greet him with quotations from the Hallel Psalms and, of course, the palm branches, all that stuff. What usually ends up being read into the traditions that I wouldn't necessarily agree with. I think if you're going to have a fig day, it'd probably be Monday. If that, probably be on the same day, for all intents and purposes. But uh, he immediately goes into the temple, according to Matthew and uh, Luke's account, cleanses it. And then John also notes that's the second time he did that uh, from the people who were taking advantage of people financially in the name of God. And on his way, he... uh, Uh, saw this fig tree that was showing, you know, the leaves of an early bloom, which tends to happen with fig plants. I don't know if you have any in your garden, but you can check. And there wasn't any fruit on it. And this, of course, is a reference to the book of Jeremiah, among all uh, things. And he says, let no fruit ever grow on you again. And then they go about their business. He jacks some fools. They come back. It's been completely withered down to the root. Now, no one poured bleach on it or anything. Jesus just cursed it out. And Peter drew special attention to it. He's like, look at that. Why, why did that happen? And Jesus takes the time to give them an object lesson, saying, you think the plant dying is impressive? You align your heart with God's. You're going to do more than that. But the point of emphasis was that Israel, this was the picture he was giving, had rejected Jesus collectively as the Messiah. Now, does that mean the Jewish people are rejected from God? Read Romans 11. But the point being made is they would, as a result, see the judgment of God. And that was, of course, fulfilled in 70 AD. But the other point of emphasis that needs to be understood is that when people are remembering these holy days and making these associations, it's centered around events of the final week of Jesus' life. And it is a week worth remembering because it was supposed to be living out the Passover ceremony, that there would be a week period of time where they would be inspecting the lamb they would offer as a sacrifice that week, not just to, you know, make sure it was still alive by the time the sacrifice, but to make sure there weren't any 
uh, injuries, there weren't any defects. They would even grow attached to it so that when that sacrifice took place, there would be some grief accompanied with it. But what's interesting as well is that during Jesus' last week, it wasn't just that particular miracle that he performed to show a lesson to the disciples and to the nation as a whole, make some Old Testament references while he was at it, but it was when the Pharisees and Sadducees were challenging him and calling him out and saying, you know, what authority gives you the right to do these things in regards to cleansing the temple? What authority gives you the right to, you know, claim the things that you're claiming? And then Jesus obviously uh, put a capstone on it when he says, uh, well, what, by what authority was John the Baptist ministry? And of course they shut up after that because they were going to end up playing by their own rules. If they said, no, he wasn't from God, then they'd lose their subscribers. And if they said, yes, he was from God, then Jesus could call him out on that and say, but you didn't believe him, did you? So the point being made is this. When Jesus was celebrating that last week and the traditions associated with it, take it or leave it, maybe they just put it on Tuesday because they needed like a special theme day for every section of the week. But the big days of this week are, of course, Palm Sunday, prophecy was fulfilled. Friday, some would argue Thursday, doesn't really matter, but the day that Jesus was handed over to the Romans to be crucified, and then, of course, Sunday, when we're remembering the first day of the following week, when he rose from the dead. As far as the events in between, you can read the gospel accounts and note the events there, but Fig Sunday is drawing attention to one particular event of many. Tuesday. Yeah. Anything you want to add to that, Pete? Good. Nah. All right. Uh, we probably have time for one more. This is a good one from our email address. And remember, if you don't want to engage so on social media, <clears throat> you can just email us at a reason for hope at gmail.com. All spelled out, no, no numbers. Um, but we had an email that came in right at the beginning of the show from Jason. And he wanted to know Have you heard of Christians leaving the traditions of fundamental evangelical Christianity? to follow the Old Testament laws of the Hebrews, yeah. minus the laws of the ceremonial temple worship. Uh, Christ, they would say, uh, didn't abolish the law. He fulfilled the law by obeying it perfectly, sinlessly, and was crucified for our sins. That's the only way that we can, uh, he, he can forgive our sins. Jesus told us to be imitators of him and follow him, so shouldn't we obey the law as he did? I'm told that the law doesn't have the power to save us, only Christ does, but... We should still strive to obey all the God, all of God's commands, both in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. Yeah, wouldn't disagree. Uh, it's usually called the Hebrew Roots Movement, mm -hmm. but uh, since I'm going to, of course, have plenty of days to discuss this, I'll be brief and give the rest of the time to you, Peter. But basically how we would deal with this is one of the errors of the Hebrew Roots Movement is it kind of takes a step, or maybe even a half a step too far, in emphasizing the Old Testament system and a legal code for governing Israel as the standard of righteousness for all people in all times. We do recognize that God's nature is unchanging, but there were aspects of the law that just were for them, and we would then apply that long-term through three standards, and this is where we would find common ground. First, was it modeled by the apostles? Second, was it modeled and taught by those sources? And most importantly, was it modeled, taught, and exemplified in Jesus' life himself? Uh, Jason, to the individuals that would make this point to you, that's just basically where you can leave it, is saying, yeah, I want to follow Jesus. So when he honored the Sabbath day, how was that done? Well, he didn't have to always observe all those ceremonies and temple rest, but he did try not to <laughs> uh, go out of his way to work. 
other than that, of course, it gets really quick into legalism, and that's true in any Christian group. But uh, what would we say to Hebrew Roots Movement other than that? Yeah, no, I think it's a great answer. So remember that we see laws as the way that we participate with God in our faith. So the, the faith is what's saving me. But now that I am saved, I want to manifest that salvation. Uh, Paul puts it this way, to work out my salvation in fear and trembling, as Philippians 2, verse 12. So I'm, I'm manifesting my salvation within my works, and I need God's law in order to give me an idea of how to do that. And some people would, as Sean said, rightly look at the traditions given to us by the Israelites. You'd be like, well, we have the entire Old Testament. We have all these laws and commandments that have been worked through by the Jews over centuries. Why wouldn't we use that as a standard of behavior as opposed to maybe, let's say, the church history and how those traditions have manifested in behavior? And uh, I don't have anything necessarily wrong with that. It's more of like the Romans 14 thing. If that's what you want to do for your own personal relationship with God, go for it. Just understand it doesn't add to your righteousness. And also understand that people who want to go a different route are not doing something wrong, right? So if you say, well, I want to worship God on Saturday because that's it, Sunday and Friday to Sunday and Saturday, that's the Sabbath. Good on you. But if you're going to look at someone and say, well, Sunday, you're taking the mark of the beast. No. <laughs> uh, Christians from very early on have used Sunday as a time of worship because Jesus rose on a Sunday, right? There's a reason why they shifted that day. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the whole idea. If you want to do that, you get more invested in the Hebrew roots of your faith. Good on you. Just understand the limitations of that. Well, thank you so much. Is that tied to the Noah laws, or is that something Noah different? Noah Hyde law? It'd be a little different. It'd be a little different. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We'll be here the same place, same time tomorrow. We hope you were blessed by this time, and uh, we certainly were. So if you have some questions, tune in tomorrow, and uh, we'll be happy to engage with you. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.